Happy Easter, everybody. Hope everyone had a great Easter. Didn't color eggs, but uh, my family was in town, had a great meal, good conversation. Boom, boom, boom. Good Easter. Give everybody a few minutes to uh, join us before we start this reading. And uh, wow, it's been a great Easter. I want to thank my sister and my brother-in-law and my niece for hosting us, for hosting me and my producer today. So it was really cool of them. Good food. Excellent food. We're going to continue with the Mojave incident today. As you can see, I'm four-eyed. <laughs> uh, last week, I, I had one lousy contact in doing this, so I struggled. So we're going to go with glasses this week so I can actually read the text. So let me get this adjusted. Like I said, I'm giving, some, I'm giving people time to come in so we can start doing this. Don't know how big a crowd we're going to have tonight because it is Easter. And that's why I, I decided to go a little later, too, because I figured everybody would be sitting down to dinner and whatnot. So, but welcome. My name is Charlotte. See my face? I'm going to be your host for the next hour or so. While we do this, this is our thing we do every Sunday. We read a paranormal-themed book. And uh, let's see. I'm trying to get this back into where I want it. There we go. We read a paranormal-themed book every week. And we read for about an hour or so. And we've been working on the Mojave incident. And here we go. My Kindle's old. It's slow, like me. It's old and it's slow, like me. There we go. Try again. I'm working on getting a new uh, tablet here. Maybe. Okay, I can make these smaller now. The <laughs> last time I did this, I made them so big, it was just insane. Okay. I'm going to go back a little bit on this because just a few paragraphs so we can explain where we were at. So we continue. Ah, there's my cousin. Hi, Becky. How's it going? How was your Easter? Ah, too big. Too big. Come on, come on, fix it. There, that's good. I can actually read that. Okay. <laughs> Something you don't see very often is me on the air in my glasses. A couple more minutes to get people, let people come in here. I am the owner and operator of the California Haunts Paranormal Inve Investigation Team based out of Sacramento. We are, get this thing here, I don't know what that is. We are 35 strong up and down the state of California. Uh, we do this for free. We're here to help and educate people about paranormal because what's going on in your house may not be paranormal. It just may seem that way. So we look at all that stuff. We're not just going in looking for spooky things and ghosties and all that. We go in looking for logical explanations. And then if we can't explain it, then we start looking at spooky things and ghosties, right? We retain psychics on our team. We retain shamans. We retain people that can help you. Retrain. Retain. Retain is the word. Must be able to have my aid. But, uh. Yeah, so that's what we do. And if you, you do need help with your paranormal stuff, uh, give us a shoot an email. You can shoot it through the radio website at CaliforniaHotsRadio.com or you can shoot me an email at CaliforniaHots.org. There's places where you can fill stuff out. We also have branches of people in Washington, Oregon, Nevada, and Hawaii. So if you're in those states, we can help you there too. Real excited too. But I hope everybody had a great Easter. We got a great creepy book to read. And I know last week things started to, started to pick up in it. And people, were, people weren't too thrilled because we had to stop. But uh, like I said, I, w I was wearing a single contact last week trying to read. And uh, 
yeah, I was wreaking havoc with my eyesight. So this is why I decided to go legit where where my glasses and get you know so I could actually read the, read the thing without having issues. But again, welcome, welcome, welcome. So a couple more minutes and away we go. So like it says, like in my, in my normal intro, if you're having munchies right now or derbies, popcorn, snacks, whatever, go ahead and grab them because we're in for a wild ride with this with this UFO encounter. And for people that are just coming on from YouTube, if you like this part of the show, don't forget to to uh, subscribe, right? That little ghost down there with the uh, magnifying glass and the Sherlock Holmes hat. Press that little guy, and that'll get you subscribed. I think there's 240 videos over there at YouTube, and uh, all kinds of different topics. We just don't focus on, you know, paranormal stuff. All kinds of educational topics on there. So uh, subscribe, subscribe, subscribe. And if you do like this video, you know, you know everybody's in with their family. So if you do like this video, bring your family in to listen. Bring your family in to turn me on. It sounds terrible. But, yeah, bring your family in to listen. And then I want you to share it. Get everybody to share it with five people. We want to get the word out about this show. Share it, share it, share it, share it, share it. That's the key. The more people hear about this show, the more people are going to hear it, maybe like it, and away we go. All right, speaking of away we go, when we left our heroes, they were uh, camping in the desert, in the Mojave, actually. And uh, our the main protagonist, the male, had just seen something weird in the sky. And so they were sitting around their campfire sipping wine, and... Both he and his wife started to see strange things in the sky. And this is where we're at. So let us continue. 9.13 p.m. Whoop, it flipped over on me. Make sure I, I make sure you can hear me. An eerie quiet fell over the camp. Tom con- contemplated loading up the truck and heading back toward Mid-Hills. But the roughness of the surrounding terrain precluded leaving until daybreak. And that made him edgy. Every bone in his body told him there was no status quo to a situation like this. That the objects would not just freeze in the sky, then simply go away. But that is exactly what they did. There was no motion, no change in size or color. Let me move this down a little bit. Just the interminable waiting, watching for them to make a move. For this lull before the storm to give way to a series of events whose prospect had tormented him since childhood. Still, it was not in Tom's nature to fear or to yield. And if these objects had come to do harm to Elise or him, they would be in for a fight. He vowed silently, a battle to the death if it came to that. To Elise, the objects represented something else again. Unaware of Tom's earlier sighting or the maelstrom of emotions that stirred, she viewed their presence as a curiosity, a celestial phenomenon perhaps, weather balloons or some experimental craft, or something far more terrifying, invasion. For weeks, banner headlines had been proclaiming mounting instability in the Soviet controlled Eastern Europe. Mass demonstrations and rioting in Hungary, Poland, and East Germany had created a totally destabilized world order. Could these lights, these craft that had found their way into the night sky above them, have something to do with that? Literally, in the middle of nowhere, how could they know what had gone on in the world during the past 24 hours? Elise sipped the wine as Tom's vigilant stare remained fixed without a word passing between them until... They're blinking, Elise reported blinking to one another like in some kind of communication. She turned to Tom suddenly bug-eyed. They're not stars. They're no weather balloons. Tom didn't answer. Couldn't. Instead, he studied the nine craft flashing what appeared to be coded messages one to the other, sometimes slowly and at other times together and in rapid succession. 
could be experimental craft. Nellis Air Force Base, 29 Palms, and the Marine Training Court aren't that far away from here. Could be anything. Maybe. But something's funny about this, and I don't like it. She put down her wine glass inadvertently, spilling it across the blanket. Look at them, Tom. They're sending signals, all right, she expounded, pointing now with both hands. But they position themselves directly on top of us. Tom sat Indian-style watching, observing. His heart racing frantically beneath his, sto- beneath his stolid, expressionless exterior. The old adver- adversary had returned. Like an unfinished match, they had come to challenge and test him. Like a predator with its quarry, they were toying with him. He was thinking as, he was fla- as the flashing signals began to intensify. Then suddenly, without a sound, and in a lapse of time so brief it seemed instantaneous, the glowing objects vanished. All nine, and it was stunning. Tom and Elise searched the desert sky, then froze. Their mouths hung open and their bodies became suddenly rigid, as if atrophied with fear and wonder. Just west of them, perhaps 400 yards away and several thousand feet up, the nine craft had repositioned themselves on the horizon, just over the crest of the mountain range in the form of a large sprawling M. Tom, I'm scared. Things like this aren't supposed to happen, even if it is the military. Elise became suddenly animated. Maybe we shouldn't be seeing this. Maybe they're doing some kind of secret exercises. I'm afraid. And don't ask me why. But I'm afraid they know we're here and we're somehow a part of all this. I don't know, Tom answered. But I've got a gun. Two of them. If it's the military, they they may know we're here, but won't bother us. Elise reached for him. She held his face between the flat of both her hands. You said, if it's the military, like you don't think it is. If it's not the military, our military, what could it be? A lot of things, I guess. The simplest explanation is military testing. I've, I've read about them doing nighttime exercises, desert training, and the like at 29 Palms. He stared deep into her eyes. But whatever it is, please don't be frightened. Hey, they're on our side, remember? It's people like you and me that pay their salaries. He gave her a look of reassurance and a nervous laugh, then looked up from the valley base into the sky once again. Holy crap, he whispered. Elisa grabbed his upper arm and squeezed it so tightly she could feel the bone. My God, she uttered in disbelief. The sky above them, their entire nighttime sky was now filled with hundreds of shiny objects, flashing signals to one another. Together they sat holding each other, too frightened to move, too frightened until it began, slowly at first, like parachutes floating free-falling downward so gracefully, so easily that it seemed indiscernible at first. So they stared, captivated by the prospects of dozens, no, hundreds, of the glowing white objects traveled like falling as the glowing, sorry, as so, so they stared, captivated by the prospects as dozens, No hundreds of the glowing white objects traveled like falling stars down and across the black onyx sky. Subtle, graceful, beautiful in their way. The round and shining orbs were descending upon them. The valley was, in fact, being invaded. Oh my God, screamed Elise. It's the Russians. The Russians are invading. No, no, Tom comforted, scrambling to his feet. It can't be. It can't be, he repeated, then began kicking out the campfire. Get in the truck, he screamed to Elise finally. I'll put out the fire so they won't see us. She hesitated. He shoved her. Get in the damn truck. 
The lights were landing now. Tom observed landing all over the valley. The lights were landing as frantic mind processed and coming towards them. With the campfire decimated, Tom grabbed Elise, who just sat there, staring, and jerked her to her feet. They're coming to get us, she muttered, entranced. There's no road. No roads out there. Tom said as much to him, Tom said as much to himself as to her. But they're still coming at us. He looked to Elise, who had lapsed into a state of shock, then took her by the hand as he raced around to the truck's cab, grab, grabbing his 12-gauge Ithaca shotgun, 7-millimeter Browning rifle, and a hunting vest looped with, dozen, with a dozen rounds of ammunition. Tom nudged Elise away toward the back of the camper shell. Go, go! Get in the back where it's safe, he screamed, launching two shells in the shotgun's breech and one in the firing chamber. But Elise would not or could not leave him. Though the sense of urgency jolting within her was electric. Unbelievably, the bright glowing objects were continuing to land. Dozens and dozens, hundreds and hundreds, raining down from the now blackened dome-like sky. Hitting the desert basin, then bolting forward in a steady fast clip progression toward the camper. Come on, you. Get within my range, Tom threatened, taking the rifleman's position as Elise clung to his arm, attempting to pull him away back into the camper. You can't do anything. You can't hurt them. There are too many of them. And they're too advanced. Too advanced for us. Tom looked to her as if emerging from a dream, suddenly aware of her tugging at his arm. Don't you hear it? Don't you hear what they're telling you? She was screaming. He stared down at her for a split second, not understanding. We could make a run for it. Get in the truck and haul ass out of here. No, no, you can't. There are no roads. Look at them, rushing towards us. They'd kill you and rape me. Don't you understand? You were right the first time. It's the camper. The back of the camper where they want us. Come, come on, she pleaded, pulling at his arm. Confused and convinced they had no chance of making it out of the valley, Tom followed her to the back of the camper, then inside. Quietly, Elise sat, watching as Tom pulled up the tailgate with the window down, laying the 12-gauge barrel excuse me, over its metal ledge, then taking aim. Nearly all the shimmering white lights had fallen from the black void that had been created and were now rushing toward them. Come on, you bastards, Tom called out in a voice that echoed across the valley, now absolutely devoid of all sound, animal, human, or otherwise. Come on, come on and get it. <clears throat> he was ranting. All of the pent-up fears and emotions blurring, blasting like a volcanic eruption from out of him. Then Elise grabbed him by the arm, hard. Don't, don't do anything to hurt them. And again, the voice, don't do anything to hurt us. And now Elise pleading. Put the gun down. You have no chance. Then the voice, coldly. Put the gun down. You have no chance. And Elise panicked. In the end, you'll only get us killed if you try to harm them. Them. Threatening. In the end, we'll kill you if you try to harm us. Tom turned toward her, angry and disoriented. What are you trying to do? Whose side are you on anyway? Look, she uttered, pointing, index, pointing an index finger extended. Arm stretched out full length. Tom recognized the glint of terror in Elise's eyes as he swung around to defend them. But there was nothing to defend against, <clears throat> for standing just beyond the back of the camper were two beings. The sight of them, the smell, the detail of the physical characteristics are something he will never be able to forget. They appeared three feet in height and two feet in width, though their proportions seem not yet to have taken total physical form, both expanding and contracting alternately. Bluish gray in color of the type caused by two live and 
by two, by two live and crackling electrical wires. It was as if they were holograms, physical and yet not physical, translucent and ill-defined, but unquestionably present. He recoiled in horror, falling forward, then bracing himself with his right hand, and in that moment they rushed toward him to an equal degree. He regained his balance sitting up and was stunned to observe the two gray entities drop back again, incredibly, to the same equal degree. It was then that Tom realized they were stationed there as guards to monitor their actions and to make certain they didn't get away. You see, it's hopeless to fight, at least tried to reason. They're not military, at least not our military. And she was right. The excitement, the voice, the dizzying, the dizzying emotions were overwhelming. <clears throat> Excuse me. Without thinking, Tom laid the shotgun on the camper bed at his side as Elise reached for him, wrenched with a numbing, racking fear. Tom had lost his will, so unlike him. So outside his realm of, so outside his realm of experience, he sat still, blinding, blindingly str stroking the side of Elise's face with his hand, his eyes fixed upon the two alien beings set as guards before them then stopped. He heard Elise gasp, then felt his own breathing cease as if the air had been sucked out of his lungs. The brilliant white objects had all landed now, and the sky was chillingly empty and white, devoid entirely of either stars or moon. But the valley, dark and sprawling, corralled by the shadowy outlines of the enormous mountainscapes, was filled, overrun from several feet away to hundreds of yards beyond thousands, hundreds of yards beyond with thousands of pairs of red eyes in the dark around them. They wanted everything we had. Everything. Our minds, our bodies, even our souls, I think. It was like they drew it out of us with a syringe, every molecule. And it was painful, and I thought we were going to die. Or had, or had already died, and were being tortured in hell. Elise Gifford. Chapter 1 on this section. Mojave Campsite, October 21st, 1989, 10.55 p.m. What is happening to us? Tom and Elise anguished as they stared from out of their camper shell, literally pinching one another as thousands of fierce and threatening pairs of red glowing eyes surrounded them. The sky was moonless, the valley so terrifyingly soundless that the wind had stopped entirely. Not an insect chirped, not a donkey bayed. The remnants of French bread and marshmallows they left by the campfire were laying there untouched, and any sign of animal life, even the kangaroo rats, was gone as if it had vanished from the face of the earth. Elise stared out from the back of the camper where the two electric gray beings stood as monitors. Then to her left and right, where through the windows of the camper shell, she watched the eyes move close enough so that the shape of their dwarfish bodies became apparent. Like gremlins, no larger than three feet in height, with heads the size of a cat's, translucent torsos, and thin, diaphanous limbs. The creatures reveled around the camper with boundless energy. Their eyes, fierce and malevolent, pierced the night as the pack of them as a pack of them climbed the branches of a nearby mesquite tree, while others tumbled and frolicked like child monsters amid the sagebrush and juniper that shrouded the desert wash where they camped. We're gonna die, said Elise at last. These were the first words uttered by either of them since they had positioned themselves in the back of the truck. Words seemed so inadequate, they thought then, so incapable of carrying the emotions they were feeling. Besides, there was something else at work now, something deeper going on. 
they began to realize as the voice inside their minds anchored itself ever more deeply so that beyond, so that they beyond influence it was exerting control over them tom's weary eyes scanned the blackened valley unsure of himself and all that was going on around him his huge frame quaked as he reached for lisa's hand pinch me what pinch me she did and he felt it am i awake yes are you seeing what i am i think so but explain it to me she answered numbly tell me exactly what you're seeing so we can compare he swallowed hard it was an exercise in sanity the monitors grayish blue like electric images forming and unforming at the foot of the tailgate she put her trembling arm around him pressing him tightly to her yes that's what i see what else the eyes red yes what do they look like dwarves kind of like monkeys but evil i can feel the evil see it in those eyes he shook his head in disbelief attempting to erase the image from his mind but it was no use they're playing he continued like wild kids running up and around the camper into the wooded area and brush of the foothills and in the tree over there he said pointing to the right but they must be weightless why because the branches of the limbs of the mesquite even the thinnest ones aren't bending i know elise whispered i see it too tom held her at arm's length suddenly he looked deep into her eyes burning with fear are we hallucinating no i don't think so then it's real as real as anything i know she pledged tom i'm scared she put his hand over her heart can you feel it my breathing my heart i think i'm hyperventilating tom's jaw locked he cast a lethal stare out to the gremlins whose sole purpose seemed to be to mock their horror don't panic he told her a jolt of adrenaline cascading through him they must want something and i'm going to find out what it is he attempted to rise the monitors rushed forward before elise could restrain him what do you want he shouted out to them no response what the hell are you doing to us we have a right to know he demanded we're human beings we have a right to know still nothing only the monitor's expressionless presence vigilant without emotion and position now at the very lip of the tailgate tom removed elise's temp tempering hand from his shoulder sliding forward still farther the beings rushed toward him to an equal degree he reached out to touch the one nearest to him with his right hand then recoiled at the burning sensation of an electrical shot as the electrical shock ran up from his fingertips through his outstretched arm tom was jolted backwards elise rushed to his aid she spoke her voice suddenly desperate please don't do that again please don't ever leave me tom promise promise me now he rubbed the stinging fingers on his right hand their eyes met elise's face was ashen he could see the helplessness in her eyes i won't leave you elise i'll never leave you he vowed pulling her closer to him i love you more than anything even my own life together they held one another sobbing as the gremlins frolicked with reckless abandon seemingly stimulated by this by the wild rhythms of their elevated heartbeats pounding chest against chest then tom's body turned rigid what is it she asked what's wrong she looked up at him he stared over her shoulder wordlessly his glistening eyes were fixed and dazed are you all right she fretted turning her head to see it the spacecraft huge descending from out of a dense cloud the object literally capped the valley then stopped hovering perhaps 100 yards above the desert floor the craft was larger than anything they ever imagined could fly 
more than a football field in diameter and shaped like a disc with an elevated dome that rose up from its center. It was encircled by brilliant white lights flashing in what appeared to be coordinated, coded rhythms. Together they watched in awe, stunned as the huge craft shot, shot a probe perhaps 200 feet in diameter down to the ground, then began transporting objects both into and out of the spacecraft. From the disc's underbelly hung six smaller units the size of helicopters and designed like miniature versions of the mother craft that suddenly became visible. All of this happening right before their eyes, and it was overwhelming. Do you see it too? Tom asked at last. Yes. The big ship with six others suspended from it? She nodded, her mouth buried in the flesh of his shoulder. The tunnel of light beaming objects up and down? Again, she nodded. Name the objects. They're patterns of things more than actual physical objects. Things like plants and cattle, cactus, and even trees. Anything else? Else, Elise paused long enough to observe a pattern of red, amber, and white lights in the form of a triangle emanating from the ship, then breaking loose from it, moving carefully, methodically, across the desert basin. She nodded. Yes, there's a triangle of lights with the tip of the triangle touching down on the ground. It seems to be combing the ground beneath the disc as if, as if searching for something. She shook her head to clear it. Do you hear the rumbling? Deep inside the ground? The triangle is like a drill, a huge drill of some time. Tom looked out into the horizon where the inverted triangle would stop momentarily, then continue its methodical search. He stared into the red, amber, and white triangle, his eyes totally unaffected by what would normally be a blinding radiance. The sound, too, that Elise alluded to could also be heard by him, a low hydraulic rumble that seemed to reverberate up and down the very bowels of the earth. It was then that he became aware of the smell, a rank chemical odor like phosphorus or burning rubber. It was sulfur, Tom decided just before his heart stopped and the, and the words issued forth from his mouth in the lifeless monotone of saturated shock. What else, he asked her. Huh? What else do you see? Jesus. Elaine sobbed. My dear, sweet Jesus, she repeated, then broke into prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, please forgive us all of our sins. Take us home and don't let us suffer. Provide for our children who have done no one any harm. Protect them. Save them from this evil, she implored. Then began crying. For peering into the camper window, totally eliminated, was a third type of being. 11.30 p.m. Tom knew immediately these were the ones responsible for the telepathic messages. They arrived in a group of nine circling the camper, staring in the windows, staring in the windows of its shell like spectators observing animals in a zoo. Taller than the others, they stood perhaps five feet in height, with enormous raven black eyes and long spindly appendages connected to an underdeveloped torso the size of a three-year-old child's. Elise stared into the face of one of them, if only for a second but it was long enough to brand a searing image that will stay in her mind forever. It's the children they want, Elise swore with deadly conviction. It's Thomas they're after. Look at them, snarled Tom, his mind tracking in a totally different direction. They're scientists, all right, trying to get inside my brain, studying me, observing me like some kind of bacteria under a microscope. They're holding us hostage now while the others go after him, Elise continued. Tom Jr. is calling out to me in his dreams. I can hear him. But I won't let you have him. Because I know what's, 
I know what it's like to be taken away and treated like some kind of thing. And it hurts, said Elise, sobbing. It hurts so deep and so long that you never forget it. Tom glared out through the camper windows as the eliminated figures continued their grisly parade before them. He remembered his football days at the U, at the U of R, his prowess as a hunter, and all that made him who he was, and it angered him to feel so helpless now, to know that their lives and the lives of their children were in danger, and to not be so impotent, and to not do it, and to do and not to be able to do anything about it. Damn you bastards. Do you think you could just hold us against our will? He exploded. We're not animals. We're not animals you can put in a cage and perform experiments on. We're people. People with thoughts and ideas and souls. He sat up straight and confrontational. The blood rushing from his head. His rage mounting. And it was then that it hit him. The flash in his mind. Wham! It was blinding. He reeled backwards. Was he having a stroke? Tom, what is it? Elise asked, moving toward him. Are you all right? He stared deep into her eyes, wary and frightened. His sense of helplessness was palpable. I, I don't know. I just felt something. It shot through my head like... But before he could finish, the visions began. Strange, unconnected pieces of his life, history, and emotions. Fractured, they spun dizzying through his mind like shards of shattered mirror. Tom is in the, bit, in the Bulldog Stadium playing the East-West Championship, bathing in the cheers of thousands as teammates give him hugs and high fives after a game-winning touchdown. Do you feel it? he asked. Elise paused to gain a sense of what might be happening. No, I don't feel anything. Tom stands, a seven-year-old boy fishing Crestline Lake with his dad and brother, reeling in not one but two bass on the same line. What does it feel like, Elise puzzles. What are you feeling now? Tom looked around the camper, disoriented to Elise, then to the bed cluttered with gear, and finally to the truck windows, brimming with the brilliance of the eliminated figures. Memories, but more than memories, feelings. I'm feeling what it was like seeing and doing things, not just remembering. Tom is hunting the high desert with a cadre of pals during his senior year of college. They flush the thick brush, finally coming up upon a, 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 a covey of quail. He shivers with delight as the birds take to the sky, the sound of the shotguns blasting in his ears. No, not painful, pleasant mostly, he uttered, stopping mid-sentence. He is a child in the living room of his parents' Barstow home, unwrapping presents beneath the tree on Christmas morning. He is a college student, heart of flutter, seeing Elise across the quad at U of R for the first time. He is lifting weights at the spa. He is on his knees, proposing to Elise at the top of the tram restaurant in Palm Springs. What's going on? He heard Elise scream, suddenly hysterical. What are they doing to you? Tom is exultant. Tom is humiliated. Tom is proud and jealous and uproarious with laughter. Tom? Tom. Elise shrieked in desperation, but it was no use. Tom tried to answer, but couldn't. Nor could he hear Elise's voice finally crying out for him as he stared, mesmerized, into the faces of the aliens. Those faces. So detached and unemotional. Seizing him. Transporting him to a place where... His worst fears and most elusive nightmares crystallize into reality. Fifteen-year-old Tom Gifford looks back toward the orange-red glow of the campfire where his parents sit drinking coffee with Keith's folks, the hunters. His family had been coming to Lake Mojave ever since he could remember, but this time is different. He knows it, though he can't say why. His high-top kids shuffle through the gritty soil as the adult voices evaporate into the chill of night air. 
He takes a mental accounting of how they got here. Ten miles beyond Searchlight. Park the car at North Cottonwood Docks. Trek further north three miles beyond the foothills. To this, the rocky banks of Lake Mojave. Here they are. Same as one dozen times before. So why is he suddenly so frightened? Tom shoots a furtive glance at Keith, who is three years his junior. He seems unfazed, fishing rod angled over the right over his right shoulder like a soldier as he walks. You like fishing at night? If you want to catch fish, you gotta get them when they're hungry, Tom answers, trying to shake the sudden iciness that begins to take hold of him. There's two times when they're hungry, early in the morning and late at night. Keith nods wordlessly. The two boys continue down the dirt path, finally emerging at the base of a large flat rock near the lake's edge where they set down their gear. Tom takes a Coleman lantern from out of his knapsack, then lights it as Keith baits his hook. He places the glowing lantern between them, his eyes slowly raising his eyes slowly raising to the stark Nevada mountain range across the lake, some four miles away. Above them, the full moon is blazing. Off to the left, the eerie glow of, of Las Vegas lights re reflects like a night fire on the horizon. And it's then that it hits him, the feeling. It's as if they're being watched. Keith casts his line into the water as Tom baits up and does the same. Hey, what are we fishing for anyway? Keith finally asks. Catfish. Bass. A uh, bass. Sorry. Anything we can catch. The answer comes back. Hooks baited. Lines in the water. They wait. Fishing's a matter of patience, Tom explains. Patience and... Jesus, you got one. Keith fumbles, Keith fumbles the rod between one hand and the other. Tom takes a step toward him to help. Hook it. That's it. He urges as, as the three-pound bass breaks water not 15 feet from the shore. He swallowed the bait, Keith. Now, snap the line up. Tom puts, his, Tom puts his hand over Keith's quaking grip, helping to steady the rod, when suddenly he feels the hairs on the back of his neck raise. He sees it first in the recesses of his mind, even before his eyes lift to the top of the mountain range. The large, shiny orb stares down at them, with the magnetic engagement of a human eye staring back, watching. The size of a basketball, even from across the lake, it rises up from behind the mountains, perhaps 500 yards, then sets itself stationary, boldly, for anyone to see. But it isn't anyone. Tom realizes immediately it's them. His hands drop to his sides reflectively. The pole jerks from out of Keith's hands, then scrapes a trail along the coarse sandy bank like the fingers of a dying man. The fish, the fish, it's getting away, Keith screams. He swings angrily toward Tom, then falls silent. Stunned for the moment, the two boys watch mesmerized as the, as the blinding white light darts from its position due east to one directly due north before their minds can register what their eyes have seen. What? What is it? The younger boy whispers hoarsely. Tom shudders. I don't know, but it's seen us, man. It's seen us. Look at the way it just hangs there staring. And listen. Keith drifts spellbound towards the edge of the rock. I don't hear nothing. That's right. Not a bird or insect. Not a rat or coyote. Like the whole world got turned off. Tom studies the brilliant white light. Beside him stands Keith, tumbling mind and soul into the abyss of terror that had been created. I'm scared, Tom. Tom's eyes grow wide. His heart pounds as he begins reeling, reeling in his line. Pack your gear. What? Pack your gear now. It's coming towards us. Keith, it's coming to get us. Tom snuffs the lantern. They leap from the huge flat rock, Tom shoving Keith in front of him, looking over his shoulder as they run. From simply moving, the round shining object seems to turn oblong like an egg. 
It's pulsating white light, gaining in intensity as it bolts forward. Run, run, atomic source. Please, God, please, God, he begs breathlessly. The object is kneeling on top of him. Tom pushes and keeps back. He is puffing, near spastic with fear, when Tom overtakes him, looping his thick arm around his waist, sweeping him from the ground. But it's a mistake. Cummings, as close as he does, their legs tangle, and both fall face first in the sandy earth. Keith is trembling. Tom feels a thick, choking sensation that leaves him paralyzed, barely able to breathe. Slowly, he cranes his neck around, then peers up over his right shoulder as Keith staggers to his feet, running wildly back toward the campsite. Directly above him, the craft hovers, a shaft of white light probing like a laser down onto him. What is it you want? he whispers hoarsely. What is it you want from me? Tom's body became a shivering mass in Elise's arms as tears streamed down the sides of his face. His eyes flashed open momentarily, praying it was all, it was all some kind of horrible dream. But it wasn't. A dream, not even a nightmare. He looked outside the camper windows, covering his eyes at the sight of the eliminated figures, still glaring at him, understanding for the first time the depth of what was happening. More than an object, Tom was convinced the craft he had spied over the wood mountain was the object, the same he had encountered more than 14 years earlier while, vaca while vacationing with his parents at Lake Mojave. The realization swept through him like a chilling wind. It seemed impossible, but it must be. Had to be true, for he was living it. For whatever reason, they wanted him to kidnap, to torture, perhaps even to kill, and he was absolutely powerless to stop it. 11.35 p.m. A feeling of total helplessness gripped Elise as she stared into the faces of the eliminated figures. Like a computer on overload, she was, she was taking in too much viscerally, psychologically. So much so that she was certain she had crashed through the barriers of normal tolerance and was now insane. Tom, she rasped. She swung, he, he swung around at the thought of his wife in danger, jarring him back to his senses. She appeared distant, dazed. Her facial expression was blank. Her eyes glistened. Elise, what is it? Are they inside your head? She nodded. Elise is a small town girl listening to Hayden's E flat major concerto, blaring from their living room sound system, snuggled up to dad on a Sunday morning. Elise, you've got to listen. The visions I told you about, I was wrong. They're not good. You've got to fight them. Got to help them from getting control. She is at home plate, swinging a bat and hitting the ball in her first little league game. Mom and Dad cheering from the stands as she rounds the bases. Her eyes shot frantically to the enormous spacecraft hovering above, then to the gremlins circling the camper, threatening to overrun it, and finally to the tunnel of light, sucking up entities of every size, shape, and form as the ship's triangular searcher continued scouring the desert. Don't let them take me, Tom. I don't want to leave you. Then don't, he urged, grabbing her, at the shoulders and attempting to shake her back to reality. You can control your thoughts. You can control your mind. She is an adult in the familiar environs of their local church in the upland, in the upland standing next to her mom, singing with the congregation. She is at a party celebrating her sixth birthday, surrounded by friends and family, blowing out the candles on a cake. Elise began to pray, desperate, certain she and Tom were going to be killed. She is making love with Tom. She is giving birth to Zoe. 
She is hearing the news that her boyfriend Dave Horton has cancer. Elise pondered her God in faith as a Mormon, begging that the children be allowed to understand that they hadn't been deserted, that she loved them now and always would. She is playing flute in the college orchestra. She is learning of little Thomas's heart defect. She is shopping the French Riviera with her mom. And then it came, the flash in her mind, bang, a jolt so pervasive that it swept her away, plunged her into a night nightmare reality from which there was no turning back. The hospital room was cold, almost glacial. With every chair and table, every object composed of stainless steel or formica, the fluorescent lights above are huge and radiant, devoid of either warmth or comfort, and it makes the least nervous. She feels Tom's hand on hers, her eyes raised to see him standing over the bed, puffing and blowing, coaching, in the style of Lamaze. But she is afraid events have taken them beyond that. Oh my God, Elise screams, gripping the sheets with both hands. You're doing fine, Elise, Dr. Wallach says calmly. Tom, let's see how we're coming along with this baby. The nurse lifts the sheets covering her legs. Elise feels fingers going back inside her. They already had they already told her the baby is transverse, but she could never imagine this. The pain is excruciating, unrelenting, and after nearly sixteen hours of labor, she is uncertain how much more she can take. Please, doctor, please, please help me. Please do something. Nurse, fifty milligrams Demerol, fifty milligrams Fenagrin four or IV, I'm sorry. I not a doctor. He smiles gently. Don't worry, we'll take care of you, little missy, he soothes. Then turning to Dr. Sublet, the, the then turning to Dr. Sublet, contractions are one minute apart. But we seem to have stopped dilating at five centimeters. Dr. Sublet glances in the direction of the NST monitor. The pitch-ins should be taking effect momentarily. Bob, let's give it a chance. Right you are, doctor. Dr. Wallach straightens up. This snaps off his surgical gloves, replacing them with a new sterile pair. He places his hands on Elise's lower abdomen, attempting to reposition the fetus into a crown for his position. But it's just not happening. Nurse, any change in the progress of labor? Yes, doctor, she answers, gently wiping Elise's forehead with a damp, cool washcloth. She's at 7 centimeters and 75% FST, with contractions still one minute apart. Good, very good, says the doctor. Your cervix is almost entirely dilated. Tom, Elise screams. Tom! Her expression is distressed as he moves towards her. I love you, Elise, he says, the first thought to cross his mind. Dr. Wallach has, has positioned himself between her legs. Your baby's ready, Elise, he says, working with the fetus, working the fetus in the position. Push, he urges. She is straining. That's it. Good. Very good, Elise. Push harder now. Go on, Elise. You can do it, Tom exhorts. She gathers her breath then forces the oxygen down with all of her strength, expanding every muscle in her body. That's it. I've got it. Shoulder, and now an arm. Come on, Elise. Don't stop now. Keep pushing. Moments later, Dr. Wallach pings the soles of the infant's feet with his forefinger. The baby responds with an energetic wail. He claps and cuts the umbilical cord, then hands the newborn over to the waiting resident. Congratulations, Elise and Tom. You are now the parents of a baby boy. All right, Tom exclaims triumphantly. Tommy Gifford, Jr. He kisses Elise on the forehead. The resident physician uses a bulb syringe to suction the child's nose before the nurse joins him to record the, ASP, the, the APGAR scores. APGAR 4, but I don't like the sound of his breathing, says the resident physician, casting a worried glance in Dr. Wallach's direction. The obstetrician rushes over to him. They confer. Nurse, get this little guy into neonatal stat. 
Hours have gone by since Elise plunged into a deep and dreamless slumber. The lights in the hospital room are on, glaring. She opens her eyes. They adjust. Where's my baby, she asks. A nurse, the only person in the room, seems nervous. The reaction puts Elise immediately on guard. You just wait here while I get the doctor. She depresses the call button, putting the nurse's station on alert. Where's my baby, Elise asks again. This time, more emphatic. The nurse edges towards the door. Now you just stay calm. I'll be right back with Dr. Wallach. Through the grogginess and headache, Elise hears a baby crying. She fights the drug-induced lethargy, then struggles out of bed. She slides her feet into slippers and puts on the pink and white housecoat she had bought. Robert brought with her to the hospital as a doctor in her center. You can't get out of bed, the nurse protests, rushing to her. You're too weak. I can and I will, she answers gravely. Where is my baby? Elise, just relax now and let me fill you in. Dr. Wallach pauses. His voice is soothing. Thomas was born with something known as ventricular septum de defect. Now it's nothing life-threatening and nothing to be overly concerned about. She gasps. Thomas is in the neonatal unit and being given the very best care possible. I want to see him. I want to see him now. She shuffles towards the door. The nurse moves to restrain her. Seeing her determination, the doctor raises the palm in the air, signaling let her go as Elise opens the door, then leaves the room. Still confused and disoriented, the effect is dreamlike. But the urge to move toward the cry becomes stronger as she passes a covey of physicians. Seems to float by them. Sad. Quite sad, she hears one of them comment. A tragedy is more like it, says another. But she pays no attention, the sound of her baby's cry far more compelling than any conversation. Then there is Tom. Don't you hear him crying? How can you be standing here with Tom Jr. crying like that? She feels like asking, but says nothing as they pass the long white corridor. They tried, did everything they could, he mutters absently. Is he talking to her? But they were outnumbered. He stares straight ahead at her. There were five of them, five with gizmos like they never imagined. He shakes his head confounded at the magnitude of the situation. I'm, I'm sorry. <clears throat> Elise is too numb to react. If she can concentrate on, on only one thing, she tells herself it will be the cry. Don't worry, Tom Jr., I won't let them hurt you, she promises, still pressing forward steadily one foot at a time. When she encounters Wolfie and Carol sitting in a waiting, sitting in a waiting area outside the operating room, Wolfie looks to her plaintively, eyes brimming as she passes. We did everything we could, baby, everything. There was just no way to know it would turn out like this. And they have their ways, believe me, they have their ways. Elise moves forward. The infants cry like a hook planted firmly in her brain, pulling drawing her toward it. We love you, darling, Carol calls out after her. No matter what, we love you. And you know they'll adjust. Kids always do. Elise doesn't react. Can't. Instead, she gravitates toward a set of panel doors. Above them in bright red block letters read the words, Operating Room. She enters. Her eyes blur momentarily as she attempts to focus. Positioned midway across from her in the chamber is an operating table. A large circular light hangs above it and it's from beneath this light that the cry emanates. Perplexed by what she sees, she must have walked in during the middle of an operation. She is thinking, because surrounding the table are four physicians. They turn as she enters, and she sees that the cries come from not, not from an infant, but from Tom Jr., their three-year-old. He sits up. His chest cavity is open with a pulmonary clamp attached to his circumflexed artery, 
and a catheter fixed to to his left atrium. An IV unit measures plasma, or sorry, an IV unit meters plasma into his right arm as blood pumps freely from an open artery leading to a superior vena cava. Why did you leave me, Mommy? He asked, staring straight ahead at her. You left me alone, and now they've taken me with them. No, no, it's not true. I would never leave you, she, she pledges. Never, ever leave you. She rushes toward him, then stops to end her tracks. Slowly, her hand raises to her mouth, overcome by the horror of what she's seeing. These are no doctors, she realizes, as the sulfurous odor permeates the air around her and the eyes become more prominent. It is them. Mommy, Mommy, Tom Jr. shrieks, the life issuing from him as the alien's chilling stares bear down from forcefully, bear down more forcefully upon her. They've taken me, used me for experiments. No, Elise screams, twisting and turning to break from their grip. No, no, no. But it was not the creatures who held her now. It was Tom. They were in the camper again. Let me move this a little bit. And they were surrounded, held captive as the eliminated figures turned their world inside out. At first, Elise thought she had gone insane, or what she, or, or, or that she, had, she and Tom had died and were being tortured in hell. Whatever the explanation, she was made to feel the sense of loss so devastating that she wasn't sure she'd go on living. Elise was coming apart. They were coming apart. Tom had the presence of mind to realize. Her entire body was quaking, and so was his. Their hearts were pounding erratically, and their body temperatures fluctuated wildly. Elevated in a smothering welter that stole the breath from their lungs one moment, shivering uncontrollably with chills that cut through them like the cold steel of a razor the next. Psychologically, it was no better. Neither seemed capable of coherent logic. Sentences were becoming difficult, and during some intervals, impossible to put together. Their mental state was predicted, was predicated, now not upon physical input, interpreted, or processed, but on the emotions and reactions already processed, then implanted into their minds, one after another, until they could bear no more. Elise looked to him, her face sallow and bloodless. She was having difficulty, grave difficulty breathing. I don't think I'm going to make it, Tom, she confessed in an ardent voice. I can't breathe. It's like there's no air, and I'm suffocating, and about to die. The streams of tears made their way down her cheeks. Tom kissed them. I feel it, too, he uttered weakly. Let's decide now that if we die, he gasped, and if we can, we'll stay together forever. She nodded. He looked the, he looked the final time to their captors, himself on verge of collapse, like scientists who had just dissected a laboratory animal. The eliminated figures observed, observed totally removed, totally detached. Not a sign of emotion or pity could be discerned. No remorse, not even curiosity. The stench of sulfur hung in the air. A vague sensation of, na of, na of nausea passed, passed through their minds as they felt themselves slipping away into unconsciousness. But it was not the dark numbness of death that followed. Rather, there came a feeling, subtle at first, that hinted that they were still alive as a, as a pervasive chill entered the camper and began to revive them. The vapor rolled into the shell from behind the monitors like a frothy mist easing both of their physical and psychological anguish. Within seconds, their pattern of breathing began to alter as each felt a pressing weight on their chest that regulated their intake of oxygen. It was controlled now, better, more regular, but beyond their influence as if the creatures knew, what, knew they were dying and wanted to keep them alive. But why?
For what purpose? Chapter 2 of this section. Mojave Campsite, October 22nd, 1989, 12.15 a.m. The chilling mist that had entered and filled the camper slowly receded, leaving both Tom and Lee psychologically ravaged. What happened? Tom asked, just now coming to a census. Where were we? Elise did not attempt an answer, but turned from the camper windows, windows physically revolted. For God's sake, pull the curtains closed, he stared at her. The curtains, Tom, she repeated, deflecting the creature's radiance with her hands. I just don't want to see them. Tom pulled them shut forcefully. It did no good. Their bodies, the eyes of the illuminated figures, shone through the flimsy nylon as prominent as ever. He held her. What are they doing to us, Elise? She shook her head at the in, in, uh, incomprehensibility of it all. I don't understand, but I know it was something to do with Thomas. It was like a dream, that absolutely real. I was there in the hospital with him, and it was horrible. Worse than an operation. It was like some kind of experiment, some kind of dissection. Elise began weeping. Tiny, anguished cries at first, followed by prolonged sobs that rose up from the very depths of her being. They want him, Tom. They want our son. I don't know why. Can't imagine. Can't believe they'd want to hurt him. He's innocent. She pled in desperation. He's never done anything to anyone. So why? Why would they want to do that? It's all right. It's going to be all right, Tom comforted, his eyes raising to the creatures outside the camper once more. Mine wasn't about Thomas, he said slowly. It was about me. And them. I never told you, never told anyone, because I figured you'd think I was crazy. But when I was a kid, 14 years ago, I went fishing with a friend at Lake Mojave. It was night, and my folks were at a campsite about a quarter mile away when we spotted a bright light over the lake. He sniggered. Wasn't hard to spot, hovering over the mountain range and clear as it was that night. And it followed us, chased both Keith and me until neither of us could run any farther. I remember we both fell to the ground. I stayed right there in the dirt, paralyzed, unable to move a muscle, while Keith got up and ran away. Then, it just floated above me, without a sound. The UFO just hovered over me, shining this light. A white light, so bright, I'll never forget it. But one you could stare right into without blinking, without it hurting your eyes at all. Tom glanced to Elise, the ears suddenly peeling away to reveal that same terrified adolescent more vulnerable than she had ever seen him. I don't know what happened after that. But early the next morning, I found myself back at the campsite. Keith was asleep, so I didn't wake him. But hours later, when he awakened, he didn't remember a thing. Not the sighting, or even of us running from it like we did. Nothing. So I buried it. A secret I've never told anyone until now. Until a moment ago, when the entire experience came tumbling back out of my head like it was happening all over again. He let loose a sob, then caught himself. And they've been waiting for me ever since, Elise. I believe that, though I don't know why, he confided, tears suddenly streaming down the sides of his face. I believe that they saw me and have come back for me and you and our kids. Now, after all these years, but I don't, can't understand what the hell it is they want. Elise's face was buried in his chest. She spoke without looking to him. It's our reactions. What? It's our reactions they want. They don't have emotions like us. They're putting us through this to try to understand how we think and what we feel. How do you know that? I don't know, but I do. 
Tom looked down to her, trembling in his arms. The tears began to dry on his face. If it happens again, we've got to resist. I don't think I can make it through much more of this. It's too much. Like, like they're raping our minds. They'll rape us to death if we let them. Elise collected herself. I don't think we can, Tom. They're too strong. We've got to try. Maybe that's what they want. Then, fuck them. He screamed in exasperation. He shot a glance back beyond the eliminated figures to the carnival of activity. To the carnival of activity beyond where the gremlins lingered. Passive now. And, tri and, and the triangular searcher continued its canvassing of the desert basin. The gigantic mothership hovering above. He reigned in his emotions. Elise shook her head in the negative. They're neutral, not capable of feeling emotions as we know them. That's what this is all about, Tom. Like the alien abductions you read about in the papers. They want information about us. Who knows what kind or for what reasons. Only this time, it isn't a farmer in some cornfield in Nebraska, it's us. An unconscious shiver passed through Tom as he realized for the first time that he and Elise were indeed at the mercy of these beings, and that abduction, even physical experimentation on board the craft, was a real possibility. And that thing out there, the triangle, he said uneasily, what do you suppose it's searching for? Elise forced herself to, to peek. She spoke, timid. Maybe it has something to do with the sound and smell. He listened to the grinding, boring noise that seemed to emanate from deep inside the earth, beneath the, beneath the truck and the desert wash around them. The smell, too, seemed to be gaining in intensity, so that their nostrils and lungs burned with the pungent, acrid smell of molten sulfur. It's possible. I told you about the rare earth mine around here, and the the other kind. You know, I told you. I'm sorry about the air earth, earth smell. Lech, my mouth. I told you about the rare earth mine around here. Could it be that they're searching for minerals, mining exotic elements to refuel their craft or bring back with them? She recoiled at the sight of the shimmering creatures, then forced herself to study their appearance. Near as tall as she. They stood staring in the camper windows, faces devoid of either lips or teeth, with a slip for a mouth and two open holes for a nose punctuating their large, oversized head with skin so white it actually glowed. But it was their eyes that most frightened her. Large, dark, piercing eyes without iris or cornea that seemed to bulge like an insect's, then narrow into a vortex of chilling emptiness. Intense and ubiquity. I'm sorry, I can't say this word. Totally lacking, I, I apologize. I just, my mouth just doesn't want to work. Totally lacking any, any semblance of human emotion. It could be a way station, said Elise. The idea is suddenly popping into her mind. I don't understand. The probe from the mother craft, you see it? He nodded, observing the tunnel of light, perhaps 100 feet in diameter. It extended from the belly of the huge spacecraft, storing the dust and cactus below it like a windless tornado sucking objects up into the craft, even while others were transported down as it scanned the desert basin below. Don't ask me why, but I feel like it might have something to do with souls. Souls? Yeah, the souls of humans coming and going to and from the earth as they are born and die. I read that somewhere. That mystics believe there are special places where the physical and spiritual planes of existence meet. Maybe this place is like that. A kind of way station where souls pass from one world into the next. 
And what does that take? What does what does that make them? Tom asked, gesturing outside. Gods, something like gods, I suppose, messengers or servants from heaven or another place we can't even imagine. Tom ruminated. He cast a lethal stare outside. His eyes riveted upon the creatures. These are no gods, he spat out. Though they'd like us to think they are. No god would ever treat people like this. But aliens, travelers from another galaxy or another time, might be curious and cruel enough to put people through this. But why us? Elise anguished. Why put us through this? We're nobody special. We've never done anything that could vaguely interest aliens or anything else like that. Tom turned to Elise, the theory taking shape in his mind as he spoke. Okay, let's say that you're right. That these are travelers from someplace else. Outer space. Heaven. Another dimension. Someplace we can't even begin to fathom. But let's also suppose that I'm right and they miscalculated on a voyage between here and wherever they come from and ran out of fuel. So they came here to the Mojave to dredge up whatever minerals they need to continue but stumbled upon us. Their first reaction might be to leave, then return once we left. Or even to kill us. If their situation is desperate. But then they recognize me from an encounter years earlier and figure, what the hell? We've got to do this mining operation anyway, so let's see what's happened since. See how he's developed. What his mate is like. Exactly what makes these humans tick. Sort of a side benefit. Additional research while they're here. That's possible, isn't it? Elise considered his words for, for a drawn moment and gasped. Tom, there was more about the gods, I mean. I mean, I just remembered where I saw it. Where? Have you ever heard of Petroglyphs? Sure. Indian paintings. There are hundreds of them all through the caves around here. Most people say they were painted by the by the Indians five, maybe six hundred years ago. Yeah, well, I read about them in a book called Mystic Places. I got from the library last summer. It's said that the local Indians considered this part of the desert sacred, a place where the deities came to show themselves to tribal priests. It talked about petroglyphs, all right but said that the most famous wasn't in a cave. It's right here in the California-Arizona desert near Fort Mojave. Scientists call them the Mojave Twins, a huge ground drawing that can only be recognized from planes passing high over the desert. Elise paused to try to comprehend the scope of what she was saying. And do you know what they look like? She pointed to the, to the curtains, saturate with the image of the illuminated figures parading around the camper. They look like them, Tom. I swear to God, the Mojave twins like, look like those things out there. 1.05 a.m. The air around them crackled with electricity. Some of it external, but much of it from them, inside. Like some hidden self deep within, within was being... Okay, like some hidden self deep within was being fed by or was feeding the creatures itself, outside. Elise struggled with the notion of what these beings were where they came from, and all that was going on around them. Tom, this can't be real. What else is it? He asked, nonplussed. What else can it be? Elise was about to respond, but stopped as if suddenly distracted. She felt the telepathic force like a tug at the edge, edge of her consciousness. Subtle at first, like a fisherman's bob on the water, nibbled far below, if only for a fleeting moment. Still, the feeling registered. It was there. Tom saw it immediately in her eyes and the way her body was positioned, rigid if only for an instant. What's wrong? 
It's beginning. What? Them. I just felt it in my mind, but only a little. Are you all right? No, she answered, the dread returning. I'm not all right. She began to shake violently as Tom held her tightly, shooting glances through the curtains through, through which the eyes shone. The eliminated figure stood still, dug in, and Elise was being pulled in it was being pulled away, back to the hellish roller coaster of moments before. Resist, Tom urged. It's January eighteenth, nineteen eighty six, and Elise is in church, dressed in a full princess gown. The priest stands before her. Tom and his brother Ron, the best man, nervously watch as she says, I do. Tom kissing her even before she is asked. Tom, I can't. She is a little girl, quietly listening as her mother reads a passage from the Bible. They're playing with you, Elise, playing with your mind. She's in her senior year of college at an Alpha Sigma Pi sorority party, flirting with one of the boys from Pai Chi. Pai Chai. Pai Chai? Pai Chi? I can't. They won't let me go. She is seven years old, sitting in the driver's seat, ringing the bell on her dad's fire engine. You gotta go. No, you got to concentrate, Elise. You gotta try. Elise is dancing with Kurt Hoyas at her high school senior prom. She is emphatic as she makes a point during a high school debating competition. She is singing Christmas carols around the tree with her brother Glenn and his newborn baby. She is running the, the 440 relay on the track team at Upland High. Tom, they're taking me from you. Hold me. Tom, please don't let go. Elise is joyous. Elise is saddened. Elise is exhilarated and angry and seething with passion. Then, all the emotions drained. Suddenly, as if a plug had been pulled somewhere and the feelings were leaving, replaced by something else. It is an ugly, hideous thing, the sensation, the memory which she never talked about. Only in dreams did it emerge, a sordid plague of a feeling. But it wasn't a memory, it was all ghoulishly real. Again, she agonized, spinning mind and soul into, into the deep and ominous grottos of her darkest childhood remembrance. Elise loves to skip rope, especially in the schoolyard next to her house. And she's good at it. Best in the whole third grade. Even Laura, her younger sister, says so. Of course, Laura, being only seven and a whole year younger, thinks everything Elise does is great. It's nice to have a younger sister, Elise is thinking as Laura and Megan sing out the teddy bear. Elise touches the ground, singing the words along with them, but still doesn't miss as her eyes divert to the man to, to the man who shuffles towards them off from behind the school gym. He is skinny with a mustache. His black hair is combed straight back, kind of, kind of funny because there isn't much of it. He's staring at her. Has she seen him before? She tries to remember. Maybe, but he looks different now dressed in blue jeans and a denim work shirt. She smiles, but he doesn't smile back, just stares as she skips, loudly singing the words, showing off maybe a little. Elise jumps as high as she can. The man is near her now. Her feet just don't work when she's looking at him. She knew that. It was stupid. You missed, Megan cries out, the rope tangling between Elise's legs. You never miss. Not that one, Laura protests. Elise untangles herself from the rope, Smiles to the man who watches, embarrassed. You're a good rope skipper, ain't you? She nods. Can I show you something? He holds a pair of eyeglasses out in his palm for her to see. All three girls move closer to him, but it's to Elise that he's talking. I lost a lens. Can you imagine the trouble I'll be in if my wife finds out? They're broken? Elise thinks a moment. That's too bad. 
Oh, it is. It is. They were a gift. And besides, he says, squinting, I can't seem too good without it. Again, Elise puzzles. Where is the last place you remember having it? Chimes her little sister. That's what my mom says. Think back and that's where you'll find what you're looking for. The stranger glances her way, smiles a chilling smile, then looks back to Elise. It was over there near those big trees in the back that I lost at any points. Will you help me find my lens, Elise? That's your name, isn't it? She nods. I know that because I'm a friend of your dad's. We know each other very well. She stares, he continues. And I know your dad would want you to help me because I can't see to find them. Not with my glasses broke like this. She thinks for a moment, looks to her sister Laura. Okay, she answers, I'll help. The stranger turns to the two others. Now you stay here and play while she comes to help. He stays in a firm, he says in a firm, angry voice. They walk. Where are we going? Elise asks in a small voice. Not far. Back here, he says, pointing again. Back to the last place I had it. Elise says nothing more, just follows. She is confused. Is this man a stranger? She knows she's seen him before. But if he's a stranger, well, Mom and Dad always told her never to be with strangers. But he needs her help. And wasn't she supposed to help people? They stop. Elise looks around. She feels a funny, tight sensation in her stomach. The schoolyard is out of sight now. Just trees and rocks and dirt. He looks down at her smiling, but it's not a happy smile. Do you know I can hurt you? Why would you hurt me? I didn't say I would hurt you. I said I could hurt you. Feel. He pinches her hard in the chest. Is that in that spot where her breasts are? Her eyes widen with pain. I want to go home. Nope. He says, staring at her brazen now. You've been a bad girl and I'm going to have to punish you. Elise stands alone, all alone, unable to think, crying. He approaches, then throws her to the ground. She tries to scream, but he covers her mouth, wrestling on top of her, unbuttoning her shorts, then jerking them down with his both hands. She can't breathe. He's smothering her with his long, bony body. She feels his hot breath on her. His chest is heaving as he, as he grunts sounds like an animal. So terrible. She is burning, on fire, sick deep in her stomach. She feels his anger. It, permeate, it permeates through her. Why do you hate me? Why do you hate everyone so much? Then she remembers the walk, the mustache and black comb, black hair. I know who you are. She, she shrieks with her last conscious breath. The stranger stops. Suddenly he struggles to his feet, then looks down at her, very angry. Ten seconds is what you got, he growls, tightening his belt as he speaks. Ten seconds, and if I catch you, you'll be dead. Elise rises slowly, never taking her eyes from him. She is crying as she pulls, pulls her panties and shorts back up, then runs and runs out of the woods, back into the schoolyard in time to see her father, John, and two brothers, Glenn and Doug, jump up over the six-foot fence that separates their yard from the playground. It was Laura. She is thinking from out the fog and shock and confusion, her sister Laura, who went and got them. The sound of police sirens cut through the hot stillness of the California day as her dad gathers her in his arms. He holds her close to the, him, comforting her, sheltering his young daughter from the world around her and the horror of what, was what, what has just happened. He said he was our friend, your friend, but he hurt me, Daddy. Oh, Daddy. Oh, Daddy. Oh, Daddy. She sobs, emptying her soul of all the pain and shame and humiliation. Elise lived from out of Tom's arms, her clothes drenched in sweat, frantic at what she had been through. Anger, confusion, a sense of violation so profound it left the air around her vibrating. 
Speechless, she glared through the curtains, her body immersed in the light as her tormentors continued their soundless procession around the camper. The feelings she was now enduring were identical to those immediately following the rape, and it was numbing. The emotions set raging through her heart and mind left her psych psychologically ruined. What they had done to her, or what had they done to her, what had they taken, if not everything she possessed, everything that made her who she was. Who are you? She shrieked out at them. What kind of things are you? Do you know what you're doing? Do you know what you're doing? She repeated to the procession, stopping to observe her breaking down before them. It was then that she felt Tom's hand on her shoulder. An odd wordless gesture, she thought then. Harrowing in its way, so light and yet at the same time significant, the touch of a stranger. She turned slowly. What? What do you want from me? She stammered. Her husband's eyes were clear, but his expression was fixed and unnatural. He knelt before her in the center of the camper, an erection bulging in his jeans. I want to make love to you. Elise moved away from him further toward the windows. He edged yet closer. What are you saying? He smiled slyly. I want you to forget about everything that's happening outside and lay down with me on the cot. Elise scrutinized his face like in an instant. Like a snapshot, the expression registered cold and scary, suddenly transposed with the face of her childhood's hacker. My God, this can't be happening. Her brain was pounding. It can't be happening. Can it be? Elise's eyes flashed to the outside where the red-eyed gremlins, previously passive, began once again to revel around the truck. Tom, this isn't you, she muttered, wiping the tears from her cheeks with the side of her hand. You can't mean what you're saying. He paused, rubbing his crotch lecherously. I want you. Stay away, she threatened, the images of her rape clicking away in her mind. He moved on to his knees, sidelong toward her. I need you, Elise. I need you now. Outside, the gremlins swarmed, eyes aglow, agitated like she had never seen them. I'm warning you. He reached for her. She fended him off. The thought of her son in mortal danger and the mental torture she had endured of the, of the insanity that undermined every thought that came into her head and now this abomination sparked a pent-up outrage that burst from Elise like an explosion. You bastard, she held back. She howled back against the camper wall, literally fighting for her life as she scratched and clawed to free herself. Don't you see what's going on? She clutched the front of her front of his shirt with both hands. Look outside, she shouted, pulling the curtains fully open and veiling the smaller beings, faces pressed flat against the windows. Do you see them? Do you see the do you see the hell we're living in? She shook him violently. Our son's life is in danger. He may have been kidnapped, killed for all we know, and you have the balls to satisfy your selfish urges. Elisa's tirade halted abruptly. Her eyes grew wide. She gasped for air, but seemed unable to catch her breath. Elise? Tom's expression softened. He looked to her, himself horrified at what was happening. Are you okay? Her hands fell to her sides. He reached for her. Elise clutched her heart, collapsing back against the camper wall. Breathe, please breathe, he prayed, as the chilling mist began rolling slowly into the camper. Her face was sheet white, her body limp. I didn't mean what I said, Elise. It was wrong of me. I knew what you'd gone through, and I said I said it anyway. But it wasn't me. Do you understand that? It wasn't me that thought or said any of those things. 
A dense mist emanating from the eliminated figures outside the camper sent tingles through each of them. It soothed Elise, calmed her so that within moments she was breathing normally. The color returned to her face. If you guys don't mind, I'm going to continue because I don't want to stop in the middle of this because it's starting to roll, okay? So we'll go for a little while longer, okay? Because I know if I stop, you're all going to be disappointed. So off we go. I told you it was a scary book. Tom cradled Elisa's head in his lap. This is 2.15 a.m., by the way. Tom cradled Elisa's head in his lap, racked by a sense of worthlessness and humiliation that left him physically ill. How could he have done this to her? What was wrong with him? Could he really be that callous? Please forgive me, he begged. I swear, I never do anything to hurt you. She closed her eyes. I don't know. I don't understand anything anymore, she answered coldly. It was then that Tom felt the tug like a steel hook sunk deep in his brain, pulling him towards oblivion. Tom? His eyes raised to the windows and all right, windows alight with the glow of the eliminated figure standing stationary once again around the camper. Suddenly, he stared into their incandescent faces with dark eyes as cold as reptiles. I don't want to go. Tom rasped, holding his head now, throbbing with the sensation. I won't. I can't stand it anymore. Tom is a boy of seven, touring the Goldstone tracking station where his dad is an electrician. Elise sat up, every fiber in her body revolting at the unfairness of what had happened to her and what was happening to Tom. What are you doing? Can't you see what you're doing to him? He does a bar so high in a gym, sizing up a wrestling opponent. The crowd around him screaming, exhorting him on as he lunges forward. It's not happening. I won't let it. He reached for Elise's hand. Hold my hand. Hold it tight so they can't take me. Tom is in Elise's hospital room, their newborn daughter Zoe in, in his arms. He is in a classroom at American University as, as poli-sci exchange student listening to Henry, as Henry Kissinger lectures on the New World Order. Leave him alone, Elise screamed, watching as the eyes of the eliminated figures bore down on him and the gremlins clamored, reawakened by their horror. You're killing him. Can't you see that? You're killing us both. Tom is at a banquet accepting an award for being named Salesman of the Year, 1988. He is standing nervously in front of Elise's dorm room, about to introduce himself. He is picking himself up from the ground, about to re-enter the Cal Lutheran U of R playoffs after suffering a mild concussion. Please, Elise, please. Tom is five years old and dressed up like Superman for Halloween. He is drinking with friends. He is newborn. He's an adolescent being disciplined by his father. She reached out, wrapping her arms tightly around him. I'll hold you, she promised. I'll take care of you. But it was no use. Elise knew, as she felt his huge frame turn rigid, then convulsed with terror. Devastated and alone, she held Tom's body suddenly lax in her arms. His eyes were vacant. He was in another place. Tom's lungs filled with the crisp morning air. Above him, the sun beams its, warm down, its warmth down upon, upon him. His eyes scan the blanket of black timber that surrounds him, a streak of yellow aspens running through it like a vein of ore. He is in the northwest country, he realizes immediately, Oregon or maybe Washington State. He asks himself, why am I here? And how did I get here? Drawing an immediate blank, then tries to convince himself that the answers will come. When? Soon. His mind retorts, suppressing the jagged edge of panic that lives just beneath the surface. Point is, 
He feels at home here, remarkably at ease, and hungry, voracious, in fact. Now he must find answers. He walks along the grassy ridge and in, into the hardwood conifer forest, sensing something he recognizes as the smell of burning wood, a campfire. He follows the scent, plodding through the damp earth and under and underbrush, until a thick netting of treetops finally gives way to sunlight. He stands at the edge of a clearing, his large muscular frame looming as he, as he scouts the area, acutely aware of what? Danger? Perhaps? His instincts tell him. He sniffs at the smoky air. The aroma of rabbit skewered over the burning mesquite clings to, his, clings to it deliciously. There is no one in sight. The fire pit crackling and circled by rocks, smolders unattended. The clearing seems deserted. Not a soul in sight, not a tent or sleeping bag to be found. He enters, ever cautious, angling toward the fire. His hunger is a throb in his gut, a nagging pang that must be seated, sated, or hunger will give way to weakness, and weakness too. No, he is a survivor, he tells himself, and a fellow woodsman would never deny a man a need. His footsteps become more certain, but again the jagged edge of the, the jagged edge rises up from the subconscious. Tracks. There are none. The ground surrounding the fire is smooth with not a twig or leaf disturbed. Not even a footprint. Why? Again the feeling of unease. And again the, the retort. Does this change everything? Food is essential. No matter where you are or why you are here. The need to nourish is more compelling than any argument. Snatching the skewered rabbit from the fire pit, he rips loose a piece with his teeth. The gratification is immense. He savors the juicy mouthful. So hungry. So hungry. He is thinking of a saw he is thinking assaging the low dull throb that lives in his stomach, knowing somehow that the hunger will always be there. But for now, he is content and full. He pauses. Sounds? Campers? Tom wonders. He discards the carcass standing on, on the balls of his feet, straining to hear. A welter of concern passes over him as he runs from out of the clearing, through the apron of forest, and back to the ridge. He looks down to the sprawling meadow, then he hears it, the sound of a rifle shot. And in that instant, he remembers how bears are baited with a 55-gallon drum filled with beaver meat. Baited, then tracked. Tracked, then shot. He realizes as he feels the sting, the sting of a 180-grain bullet in his left leg. It isn't a direct hit, but the force of the bullet spins him halfway around. The shock sends waves of impact radiating through his body. It disrupts his entire nervous system so that his arms go numb and both legs fall out from under him. Instinctively, Tom rises from the ground. A flood of questions roars through his consciousness. But only one question and one answer matters. Why am I here? His mind resounds, and the reply so simple, so direct. You are here to be hunted. The awareness sends him flying in a blind panic. He lurches from the ridge, streaking back to the forest. He had to move and keep moving, he knew, for the hunters would be after him, assuming he'd been wounded, waiting to put him out of his misery. He stops to examine his wound, too shocked to feel pain. Rather, the sensation is dizzying, perhaps from fear as likely as from a loss of blood because his left leg, pierced through the calf, is bleeding horribly. He rips a loose section of shirt to form a tourniquet. Still, he can't stop. Not now. Fleeing is a matter of survival, pure and simple. But where? In what direction? He looks to the sky, over, to the sky overwhelmed. 
into the forest. The deeper the better, and downward, east into the sun, his shattered mind races. Frantic, he runs long and hard until he hears a sound that causes his pounding heart to sink. No longer was there a chance no longer was there a chance to hole up in concealment. It was the sound of a death knell, howls baying in the distance. Tom runs wildly through the dark wet timber over forest shrubs and through the tangle of vines and low-hanging branches, his mind operating at levels of perception he never knew existed. He is hot and flushed, and his burning flesh feels liquid, oozing his physical nature away, freeing some instinctional creature buried for millennia. There is nothing nearby, his mind tells him, an important something telegraphed by sound and smell and feeling, a running creek. He veers toward it, pushing his body, commanding his wounded leg to obey. It is life or death. His brain is shrinking as he is shrieking as he nears it. Thirty feet across and no less than two feet deep, he is thinking, his chance to throw the dogs off a scent. He collects himself, then bolts across the creek. He takes several steps to the opposite bank, then doubles back to its center where he treks upstream some twenty yards, then crosses full crosses full way. The barking of the lead dog and baying of the others is more feverish now. They are on to him. Behind him, less than one hundred yards, leaving him more se mere seconds to ghost away in a tree or the dogs will rout him out, then tear him to pieces. He catches sight of a fan-shaped oak tree. Gasping for air, he reaches up to its lowest branch, then pulls himself onto it. His torn cap is beginning to ache now, and he grimaces at, as it bends. He takes another branch into his right hand, then does the same. He climbs... He, okay. His climb comes to an abrupt halt when he spots the lead dog. The hound has arrived at the bank of the creek and is sniffing. Tom wants to, to watch, but forces himself to turn away. The sound of the barking dogs elevates no, no, noticeably as three others arrive. They sniff the area, noses to the ground, their frustration apparent. They have lost the scent. He's a smart one, ain't he, says the first of the hunters to arrive at the bank. The shooter, who holds a torn remnant of Tom's shirt, walks over the lead hound, waving it at his nose. Now, we'll just see about that, won't we? He answers, reserving judgment as the dog's tail stiffens. Tom steals a peek in the direction, in time to see the lead hound darting toward the tree where he hides. Within seconds, the dog stands on its hind legs, joined by the others, front paws up on the trunk, heads thrown back, barking and growling their fervor for the hunt. The shooter turns on his heel, aiming the 300 Winchester at Tom's heart, then fires. Tom takes the bullet in his right shoulder. It shatters the bone, hitting at such high velocity that it jellies the flesh surrounding the wound channel. He falls from the tree. The hounds rush upon him, barking wildly. He is totally without feeling now. Though his mind still operates, it is with the distancing that makes the pain and, and tearing of flesh seem to be happening to someone else. He thinks of Elise and how lovely she is, and little Thomas and Zoe, their baby, and it fills him with profound sadness to think he will never see them again. When the hunters arrive, the dogs are restrained. The shooter pulls him up by the hair. Good size, ain't he? Yeah, the series of rumbled voices comes back from the others. He feels the jab and puncture of a cold steel blade just below his sternum. Then he hears the tear of his flesh as the knife rips downward to his pelvic bone and a gush of warm blood floods through his thighs and, floods through his thighs and genitals. 
The last thought that crosses Thomas' mind comes quietly and with a vague sense of surprise. My God, he thinks, they're skinning me alive. Tom groaned, groggily and disoriented, as if coming out of the deepest reveries. He was alone. He is dead, disoriented, in the camper in the Mojave. He ran a trembling hand over his sweaty face, attempting to get his bearings. It was a dream, all of it. A terrible, horrible nightmare. But now it was over, he reasoned, eyes racing to Elise beside him, then to the camper windows, unleashing a hell of agony and despair that rang from the valley. For staring at him were the eyes, hungering for information, tearing, ripping his mind apart. It's up to you guys. Do you want me to continue? Because I'll continue. We can go for another uh, half hour. So what do you guys say? All right. I want to go another half hour, I think. Might as well make it, you know, might as well just go to nine on it. And uh, I tell you, it's a great book. So let's just continue here. Let me get a breather. Mojave Campsite, October 22nd, 1989. It's okay, baby. It's okay, Elise comforted. No, no, it isn't, Tom protested, shaking his head from side to side, trying to dispel even the vaguest remnant of his vision. I was hunted, like an animal. Then, it's over now. It's over now. He looked into Elise's face, hungering for reassurance, his ravaged mind desperate for any... Let me this. Okay. Desperate for, for any semblance of sanity. They mutilated my body. But such succor Elise could not offer, for she herself was now deadened with shock and exhaustion. You. Her face was expressionless. It was rape. I told you before. We were married. When I was a little girl, just eight years old, a man, someone from town, took me behind the schoolyard near where we lived and raped me. And now I've been forced to relive it. Not to remember, but to go through it all again. Her voice quavered. Why are you doing this to us, Tom? They held one another. He kissed the tears from her cheeks. I don't know why. I only know that I love you, Elise. I truly do. I know when I forgive you for what happened before. It wasn't you. It was them. They made you do it. The way they made me relive the rape and torture of my childhood. And torture of my child. And I hate them, Tom. I hate them for what they're doing. Tom glowered out at the eliminated figures, and beyond noticing now for the first time since the onset of the invasion that the smaller ones, the gremlins, were beginning to recede. He pulled away from Elise to see more clearly, to make certain it was real, but without a doubt, from behind the shimmering wall of light cast through the windows by the eliminated figures one at a time, and then in packs they scrambled along the desert wash back into the valley from where they came. What? What is it? Elise asked. They're leaving. What? Look, he exclaimed, pointing, then tracking, then tracking their path with his finger. They're going back to the valley. Elise watched, a feeling of, immerse, of immense relief welled up inside her. It's ending, isn't it? A smile crossed Tom's lips. Yes, I think it might be. Together they observed the exodus as the gremlins scurried back into the night, dozens at a time. Their grayish-blue bodies hunched over as they receded, heads turning back toward the camper only occasionally with a flash of their laser-like red eyes. We've done it. We've outlasted them, Tom proclaimed as they hugged one another. I know. Let's see. I know how it will be. The little ones will go first because they, they were the first to land. Then the monitors. 
then the tall ones, and finally the ship. The space will leave and take them all away. God, God help us. I think you're right, Elise. And the time. He looked at this time exportsman. Jesus, it's only 3 a.m. But it's got to be daylight soon. They'll never stay beyond that. How could they? Someone else is bound to see. Together they huddled joyous in the back of the camper shell, watching as the, the eliminated figures, too, began backing slowly away from the truck. You know, if what you said before is true, that they didn't come for us, but we're here to do something, some kind of mission, but stumbled onto us by coincidence, couldn't it be that they've done whatever, whatever testing, psychological testing, they wanted and now they're through? Because look, they're going deeper now. Deeper, let's see. Okay, deeper into the desert and farther from us. And if you look close, you can see the objects. They're beaming more closely than ever before. Elise showed Tom the circular probe trans transporting to find images now. Outlines of animals, dogs, and cows and donkeys up into the craft as, they, as the inverted triangle of lights worked in tandem with it, intensifying its seemingly inexhaustible search for the desert basin of the desert basin. The light that laced the underbellies of the six smaller craft attached to the mothership appeared also to be part of the operation. Flashing signals in coordinated patterns, perhaps even orchestrating the arcane activities that continued widespread and unabated. Maybe their mission here, whatever it is, is ending. Maybe they'll just leave us alone, unharmed. Isn't that possible? Yes, yes, it's possible. What could they want with us, really? Who are we? I mean, if, if, if they wanted to take human specimens, they sure as hell wouldn't want to come in the middle of Mojave to find them. Elise smiled, a rapturous smile, as a deep and, as, as a deep and persuasive euphoria seeped into her heart, into their hearts, and she began praying. Thank you, Lord, for allowing us to be spared. We believe in you. We trust in your almighty wisdom. We are your servants and pray now that we will be united once again with our families and children who we love more than anything on this earth. Tom's emotional state had risen to the point of intoxication as he cheered the disappearance of the gremlins and near withdrawal of the others. This is it, he called out, his happiness unrestrained. They're leaving. We're going to live. We're going to see our children again. The cries of joy and prayers of thanks reverberated within the tiny camper shell, and still, for an instant, after they stopped, so suddenly the muted echo remained. Then. Silence. Total and complete for mishaving again, but this time with a vengeance, as if these pathetic moments of ecstasy had been created simply to be snuffed immediately after they had been supplanted. The eliminated figures stepped forward once again, their probing stares more absorbing than ever. And the gremlins, hundreds of them, charged forward, surrounding the camper, overrunning it, as they had never attempted before. Tom and Elise watched, what was going on around them in disbelief. The intricate world of hope and dreams for the future that had been created in their minds was being snatched from them now before their very eyes. Hopes of seeing their children and parents and friends, expectations for, for their own lives and the, and the beliefs they cherished were being laid to waste. In an instant, joy became grief, hope became despair, and the gratitude they had voiced reverted to rage. Tom snapped, a murderous fury spewing from out of him as he pounded the camper windows with closed fist. I'll kill you. I'll kill all of you. Every one of you, he bellowed. They'll never let us leave here, Elise muttered in a, in a lilting voice. Never, ever let us leave here alive. 
They're going to kill us. What choice do they have? We've seen them, she babbled. We've seen them so they can't let, let us go or we'll tell. We'll tell everyone. We'll tell the world who they are and what they've done. Tom reached for his 12-gauge. He cursed, taking the shotgun in his hands. You think you can get away with this? But before he could raise the weapon, the monitors glided the, the monitors glided forward and the voice inside of his head began drawing began drawing his sense of purpose from him, arresting his will so that the fury subsided and he became powerless to hurt them. Don't do anything to hunt us. Then put the gun down, you have no chance. And finally, measured and reserved, in the end, we'll kill you if you try to harm us. Tom dropped the shotgun. It made a clanging metallic sound as it struck the camper steel truck bed. It was no use resisting. No use at all, he realized. His feelings of rage replaced by a sense of saturated horror as he looked out into the valley where the tunnel of light shooting down from the mothercraft tore across the desert expanse on its way to their camper. 3.25 a.m. The gremlins, drove of them, droves of them clamored, streaming over the top of the truck, pressing their grotesque faces emotionless as leather masks against the as leather masks against the windows to taunt their captors. The procession of eliminated figures continued unrelenting, as dozens of others joined them, some standing stationary just five to six feet from the truck, while others observed like spectators from afar. Yet, beyond the frenzy, a storm was going on within the tunnel of light as Tom and Elise watched the probe approaching, dumbfounded. There were properties the probe possessed unlike any he had ever imagined. Tom noticed now for the first time since he'd observed it. Following in the wake of the searcher, which, which he judged to be a kind of homing device to identify and locate, the probe cut a swath of radiance through the night. But it was not a blinding light, he realized, staring into it, eyes unshielded and apparently unaffected. And now he could see that it was not simply objects that the probe was retrieving, but elements, fine showers of particles being drawn up from the ground. The grinding sound intensified, and the tunnel of light they had observed earlier from the distance was now actually causing the truck to vibrate as it neared. It was a laser of some kind, Tom believed, doing massive drilling at some extreme level deep within the earth. But more, he realized, fear rising up like a knot in his throat. This would be the mechanism the aliens used to take them on board of the craft. They're going to take us, Elise croaked, barely able to speak. I know. The children, the poor children, I'm so sad. They'll understand. How? How will they understand when their parents have simply vanished from the face of the earth? She was crying. I have this feeling, this, this, this dread of being captured and tortured, Tom, she confessed. I think I'd rather die here in this camper than go up with them. They watched the probe, the probe edging forward in the short paced increments. The truck is vibrating all over now, shaking violently as the rank odor of burning metal infused the camper shell. I don't want to die, Elise. I've never been more scared. What can we do? Suicide is a sin, but God would understand. I know he would because I just can't bear the thought of those things out there touching me or probing my insides. I've been raped once, Tom. It will never happen again. I'll stand by you. I'll be strong, Elise. I promise. They held each other and held onto the side of the camper shell, now to keep from being pummeled. Camping gear and silverware and canned goods cascaded from out of the low boy. The truck was actually being lifted, lifted off the ground. 
It's pretty near on top of us now, Elise. What's happening? What the hell will, will happen when we're inside the tunnel? Help, help, someone, please help us. Elise was screaming hysterically as the truck began rocking so violently it seemed about to explode. The noise, the grinding sound, so deep and reverberating with such pressure was maddening. The pungent stench, thick and acrid in the trapped air around them, seared their lungs and stung their eyes. And now, the gremlins, totally wanton, agitated, and aggressive as they stared in the windows with unbridled glee, clinging to the top of the camper shell, attempting to overrun the monitors from behind the tailgate. And all the while, the eliminated figure stood, stationary once more, observing, studying the hysteria both inside and outside the camper. Get away from us, Tom screeched at the gremlins through the hellish sounds and sights that surrounded them. Leave us alone, for God's sake. Leave us alone. Leave us in peace. He clutched at the side of the bolted-down bunk, leaning, to, leaning toward the left window. His back was to Elise, who watched aghast as one of the eliminated figures stepped through the morass beyond the gremlins, raising a distended three-fingered hand in her direction. Elise was too wooden to react. But with that motion, a fleck of light the size of a cigarette butt passed from his fingertips through the window and into her abdomen. Ah, she shrieked at the sight of it. What is it? Tom called out over the bedlam. My God, it's inside my stomach. She tore away her shirt with her free hand, frantically trying to brush it away, but it was not on her. It was inside her body. We're going up, Tom bellowed. The probe's brilliance totally enveloping the truck and the area around it. Jesus, my God and Savior, help your humble servant. Save us from all danger. Protect us from evil. Tom clenched his teeth, certain they were about to disintegrate, reduced to the, reduced to the atoms and molecules that comprised them once inside the tunnel. Elise speculated that she'd been impregnated, or that, an, or that an ovary had been plucked from inside her, and they would be taken intact for experimentation. But the reality was different from anything either could have imagined. For now, both believe the truck and the entire environment around was being lifted into the vast collection center inside the mothership. Above, above them, they could see the underbelly of the craft, camouflaged by clouds as they were being lifted, its immense banks of lights continually blinking, and then nothing. Do you feel it? Tom hollered over the dissonance. It's like the earth has been cut out around us. All of it. The truck, the sky, the desert wash, everything. There's air beneath us. I feel it, too. The scenery hasn't changed, but it's like we're suspended somewhere. Like they've separated us from Earth and put us into some kind of vast museum. Tom shivered, wrapping his arms around his upper torso. And colder. Do you feel it? Suddenly now, like oxygen is. It's pouring in from somewhere. He stammered, peering outside through the windows in wonderment, not knowing what to expect next. Strangely, Despite their ascent skyward, their environment had indeed remained the same. They took an accounting, the desert, the mountains, the camper, and the surrounding brush. But there was no noise. The drilling had stopped, and the smell was gone. The spacecraft, so ominous throughout their captivity, was no longer above them. And the gremlins truly were retracting now. Their dwarfish bodies disappearing, one by one, beamed up as lights, beamed up as lights just as they had come. And the eliminated figures, too, had been all had all but vanished. The virulence and mental anguish they'd inflicted ushered out by a new totally translucent presence, unmistakable in its femininity. Now, clearly, 
there seemed an order to this realm of existence that had so suddenly and pervasively enveloped them, the gremlins so crude and frenetic, the short, stump-like greys who monitored them, the more intelligent, scientific, illuminated figures, and now she, this presence so gentle and yet so powerful in nature. It was this entity who had dispelled the lesser creatures. Tom and Elise understood immediately, watching in astonishment, as the smoke-white swirling form descended from the left of their sky, a being that in, or, that, in, or, that in other times may have been called an angel. She was radiant, exquisite in appearance and nature, her loosened robe flowing as she floated gracefully towards them, and then a voice, excuse me, of another kind, sorry, soothing, comforting, and totally serene. It's all right. I'm here now to protect you. Be at peace. It's almost over. With that, the presence left as she had come, mysteriously lifting up and away from them, still watching over her two charges and minding the lesser life forms as she faded from view, making certain, even to the end, that they were safe and comforted and their torment was over. We've been chosen for something, Elise confided to her husband. I don't know what. Maybe it's just to tell our story, what we've seen, what we've been allowed to see. Tom looked out into the expanse of desert, suddenly tranquil. The searcher was the only alien presence remaining, except for the two monitors that stayed in position beyond the tailgate and the eliminated figures who had backed off from the truck and were retreating back to the desert. I still can't believe this has happened, he uttered. It seems like a dream, but I know we're not dreaming. With the, moment, with the moment's respite came a feeling of total mental and physical exhaustion. All telepathic communication had ceased, and in the absence of freezing fog that alleviated bodily discomfort, both became a war of an excruciating need to relieve themselves. Still too terrified to leave the camper, they urinated one at a time in the, in the plastic container. Is it all right to sleep? Elise asked afterward. I can't stay awake any longer, Tom answered wearily. But they're still here, the monitors, the searcher. Torn, too fatigued even to speak, simply, Tom, I'm sorry, Tom, too fatigued even to speak, simply laid down, clothes and boots still on the top of the bed. Elise glanced from the camper window into the western sky one final time before laying down to join him. Far above them, a bright light bled through the black firmament on the, for the first time since the beginning of the onslaught. As they had come, the demonic red-eyed creatures were being beamed up from the outer fringes of the valley to that one point until it started resembling the moon a crescent moon that began swinging like a pendulum. They've given us our moon back, at least warbled to no one. This pleasant thought, the last she would remember, before lapsing into a deep and dreamless slumber. Okay, that's what that's it for today. We're going to continue. Um, let's see how far we have to go here. Yeah, we're going to continue next Sunday, but I want to get you guys through... Um, I want to get you guys through the abduction part, portion of it. So we will continue Sunday. So I hope you liked the read. I told you it was spooky. And it gets spookier. If you can believe that, it's going to be, there's going to be a lot, a lot of spooky sections coming up. So just to give you an FYI. So next Sunday, we'll do this again. Regular time, 6 p.m. Let me put this away. I can't even find the right place to put my my thing. Okay, yeah, so next Sunday we'll do this again. What the heck? Okay. 
Really? Okay. Okay, doesn't want to go. That's fine. So next Sunday, I don't know why it doesn't want to go. But next Sunday, we'll be back at 6 p.m. doing this. 6 p.m. Pacific. And I'm pulling this stuff down with my feet. Tomorrow, we're going to be back at 6.30 p.m., the usual time. Michael Breen, I think his, his name is for Dallas Breen. He is known as the, let me get this over here because I can't read it. It's dark. He is known as the uh, travel professor. The travel psychologist is going to be with us. And he, uh, the travel psychologist, and he travels all around the world and he writes articles about, you know, where he goes. But he also has a section of articles based on paranormal travel. You know, places you can go, uh, you know, that are haunted or you there have been abductions or whatever. So we're going to be talking to him tomorrow afternoon, tomorrow at 6.30 p.m. Pacific. So be sure to be here and I'll be, I know I'll be here. And I'm going to get, to get up here and get forward a little bit. Hey, okay. Uh, that creaking you hear is not my chair. It's me. I'm old, right? Anyway, um, he'll be with us tomorrow at 6.30. So uh, I'm looking forward to that. And I hope you're looking forward to that, too. It's been great. We almost did two hours tonight, which is fine. But like I said, I wanted to get you through the whole abduction. But uh, it doesn't end there. Okay? It just doesn't end there. So I will see you guys tomorrow. And uh, have a good rest of your holiday, okay? Bye-bye. Maybe not. <laughs> there. Okay.